0: It is good to be together today and to open up God's Word. We continue our exposition in the Gospel of John, finding ourselves in chapter 4 in a very familiar passage, the woman at the well. It's very, very familiar. And I've heard a lot of sermons that actually kind of say five steps to effective evangelism and, and those kinds of things. And there are certainly applications for evangelism that we see there. But I don't think John as he's writing John the Evangelist while he's writing his his gospel says this would be a good place to put five steps for evangelism. You know, it's kind of like, you know, six ways to have a happy marriage and that kind of thing. No, John's purpose is to show us Christ, to show us his care, to show us his compassion, to show us his person, to show us that he ministers to all different kinds of people not exclusively one group of people. That's his purpose. Our great need is to learn more about Christ so that we might love Christ all the more. And then as a natural outflow of that, the great missionary Henry Martin said this, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. And the nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we become. If you want to be an effective evangelist and you want to be able to share your faith, get close to Christ. Don't look for the five ways to this and that type of thing. The contrast between the third chapter of John and the fourth chapter of John is very striking to me. You see his work in Judea with Nicodemus and John the Baptist and and all of that in chapter 3. And then now you see his work in Samaria. In this chapter here, I mean, just let's consider the contrast between Nicodemus and the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman. Nicodemus was a man. The woman at the well obviously was a woman. Uh, Nicodemus was very wealthy and educated. The woman was unschooled and without any influence and despised. Nicodemus was powerful and respected. He was a Jew, he was a ruler, the woman at the well was a Samaritan and a moral outcast. So the title of the message is, Living Water for a Thirsty Soul. Are you thirsty today? Are you thirsty today? Take of that water. Maybe you've already taken of the water and you are already saved, will long to have more of Christ. So let's read our text, brethren. Turn to chapter 4 of the Gospel of John. Reading from the New American Standard. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again to Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria So he came to the city of Samaria, called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you being a Jew would ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, "'Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is very deep. Where then do you get this living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle?' Jesus answered and said, "'Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give shall never thirst.'" But the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, You have correctly said I have no husband For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place of worship where men ought to worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have an infallible word of God. We have the final revelation of Jesus Christ contained in the Holy Scriptures. We don't have to look at, listen to our dreams and listen for voices, Lord, for you have spoken. And Lord, even as we examine this text in which you have given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the Apostle John, help us to see more of Christ. Help us to even be grateful that there's a Savior that seeks and saves the lost. The great soul-seeker, the great sin-destroyer, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to even see his compassion even today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> well, we have here a very fascinating passage. Of course, the context, John chapter 3, one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. Uh, I'm, I'm convinced myself it's one of one of the ones I appreciate the most, but just seeing how it unfolds and it builds, it is a fascinating chapter and the, when the therefore there in verse 1 doesn't go to just verses 31 to 36 last week's text but it goes back to when John and Jesus were baptizing and remember John's disciples were, were envious they come to John and demanding their rights uh, their entitlement they go behold he of whom you spoke the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is baptizing and all men are going to him we don't have enough popularity so that's the context really that, that's taking place here. And then last week's text is, is fascinating. You know, when, when John the Baptist says, He must increase, I must decrease, there's there's just quotation marks, and it's almost as though you could think that John the Baptist is still speaking, but I do think it's John the Evangelist here. It's not always clear. And he says, He who comes from above is above all. What we have heard, he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. So Jesus is not only above all, he's a rank above all others, but he brings a superior revelation as well. He alone has come from above. He alone has been with the Father in the Spirit and has heard all these things. We read John 8 where he he says repeatedly, my Father has told me, and, and there's this communication there. And then that warning, the last verse, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey in the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So a clarion call to believe throughout John chapter 3. Now, as we come to our text today, we're going to look at this under, under four main points. They're all D's, and we're going to consider, first of all, Jesus enters a detestable region. Secondly, Jesus engages with a despised woman. Thirdly, Jesus freely offers divine water, a divine resource. And then lastly, Jesus declares her guilt. So really verses 1-6 to is just painting the context. It's kind of setting the stage, as it were. Um, And so, Evidently, Jesus did not wish to begin his conflict with the Pharisees, which would happen several times as it does through the Gospels, and so he decides it's time to leave Judea and to head north. Every time Jesus would return from Galilee back to Jerusalem, you have this engagement, this conflict with the Pharisees. You'll see it again in this Gospel in chapter 5, chapter 7 to 11 roughly, and then um, and different parts of that. Now, we have to remember, if you have your map in the back of your Bible, but you have a digital Bible, most people just use their phones, but you know, those of us who still use a paper copy, we can go back and cheat and look at around the time of Jesus. But Jerusalem is to the south, right? That was the southern kingdom. You have the Jordan River running north and south. The Galilee and the Sea of Galilee is in the north. The region of Samaria is right in the middle. And so we need to understand that. We also need to understand the radical and ethnic issues that made the Jews feel disdain for the Samaritans. They were ceremonially unclean in the Jewish eyes. In fact, the Jews would rather go around Samaria than travel through Samaria. They considered the Samaritans to be half-breeds, as it were, unclean half-breeds. They'd prefer to go into the land of the no-breeds, the Gentile territory, than to go into the, through the land of the half-breeds. So what would happen is, right around Jericho, they would head east, cross the Jordan River into Gentile territory, head north, and then cross back again. I, I mention all that to you just to show the utter disdain that Jews had for Samaritans. The Pharisees would be blowing a cork if they were there by the well, seeing Jesus engaging with this Samaritan woman. In fact, we need to understand the history of the Samaritans. Now, there's a lot of history from Genesis that takes place around Jacob's well, hence it's called Jacob's well. Uh, Abraham was there, and I'll mention that later. But you remember the divided kingdom after Solomon. You had the northern kingdom, and you had the southern kingdom. This is the region of the northern kingdom. And remember when the exile happened the northern kingdom went into exile first and that was 722 BC they deported all the Israelites of substance and then they settled the land where they've exiled most of the Jews with foreigners and they intermarried and they became it was a very wicked place you have account of that in 2nd Kings 17 and 18 if you want to look at that And after the exile of the southern kingdom, which was a century later, Jews were, and then as they returned from their to their homeland, they viewed the Samaritans not only as children of political rebels, but of racial half-breeds, whose region was tainted by unacceptable worship. In fact, in 400 BC they erected a rival temple to that of which was in Jerusalem and near Mount Garrison, Mount Garrison is a place a blessing. Mount Garrison, there were two mountains near there that was 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 very um, probably like sheer rock, maybe like Yosemite. Of course, not that tall, but and so there would be shade that would come on the well at certain parts of the day. In fact, in Deuteronomy, um, God's people are told in chapter eleven. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall not set the blessing on Mount Garrison and, I'm sorry, you shall set the blessing on Mount Garrison and curse Mount Ebal. Now, some of the Samaritan traditions of this is the land that Abraham passed through. He, he camped near um, Mount Garrison. Um, and then, according to Samaritan tradition, this is a mountain where he prepared to offer his son. Isaac. And as well is where he met Melchizedek. And this was the scene of Jacob's dream. You remember the ladder ascending and descending. And so this had a lot of history. That's why the Jews had disdain for the Samaritans. Intermixed, inter, you know, not pure. Now, look at the text here in verse 4. He had to pass through Samaria. Now, that word had is day in the Greek. It's the same word that we see in chapter 3 verse 7 that says you must be born again. It's a very, very strong word. It's the same word John the Baptist says I must decrease. And so here what John the writer is saying is Jesus must go to Samaria. Now why is that? Was there some earthly appointment you know, in four days? You had to meet somebody? Was Was there some earthly time clock of some sort? Was it a geographical convenience to not have to walk further? This was three days journey just going straight through. Perhaps it would take an extra day to go into Gentile territory. What is the reasons why he had to go this way? I submit to you it was by a divine appointment. It was according to God's sovereign will. It's because of the human condition. Fallen in Adam, the the despised and rejected people need the gospel as well. And so he had to go there. Christ came into the world to save sinners, so it's not merely a geographical convenience. It's a human necessity that Christ reach every person with the glorious gospel. He came into the world to save the world, so it's necessary for him to go there. Look in chapter verse thirty-five of this very chapter. He tells them, "Do not say there are, are. Do you not say there are yet four months, and then comes a harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look to the fields; they are white for harvest." And this area needed harvesting, as it were. Now, in verses five and six, he comes uh, to the city of Samaria, to the, the or the sorry city of Samaria called Sychar. It's probably a, a synonym for Shechem, the area of Shechem that's right near there. And he travels to a historical monument. He doesn't just stop anywhere in Samaria. He goes to a. A you know, historical monument, when my wife and I have the privilege of doing little road trips or something, and you see those brown signs, historical monument? Some of them are corny, some of them are pretty cool, right? But, but this was a, a, a historical monument, and so Jesus comes to this, let's call it a famous rest stop, right? To be refreshed to be refreshed with liquid and to, to rest, to stretch one's legs, as it were. I suppose they were walking, so when we're driving cross-country, we need to stretch our legs. But in the West Coast, you have these big travel centers, TA travel center. You go in, you get all the, all the stuff to be refreshed. In Texas, I keep hearing about friends that talk about this buc B-U-C-E-E or whatever, supposed to be like, like, like the place to go in Texas for a rest stop, 32 of them throughout the state. If I ever make it back there, I'll try to visit one. But but this well, we need to understand, is it's a deep well, right? It, it's, it's probably 100 feet deep, dug by a stranger, apparently in the land where there's abundant springs in that area. Genesis 26.19 say, says, But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well flowing with water, and so the springs would be deep and the well would be... Made so that you could draw down to get the water. Now, verse 6, Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus being wearied from his journey. The verb means to toil excessively. Here he is, he's been dispatching, using, using his gifts, and, 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 and laboring, as it were, for a lost people. And, and, and he's walked all this way in the heat of the day, and he is exhausted. And the sixth hour, depending if it's Roman, and, or, Roman or Jewish time, um, most commentators think this would be roughly high noon. It could be that it's 6 p.m. It's irrelevant, right? He's exhausted. He uses the verb on, point, on purpose that he's toiled excessively. He's weary here. He's tired here. Probably traveling since the early morning and then finally has a chance to rest. You see, John's gospel does a wonderful job of painting the deity of Christ, doesn't it? You see it throughout. Um, but also, John's gospel emphasizes the humanity of Christ. He was a true man, he got tired, he got hungry. I mean, we see in this gospel alone, in chapter 1 of verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We see in chapter 11 that that he's moved deeply with compassion about the death of Lazarus. We see in chapter 11 that Jesus wept, right? The shortest verse in the entire Bible. So John paints both pictures, deity and humanity, the God-man wedded together. So, That is the detestable region, Samaria. Now, let's look at verses 7 to 9. Jesus engages with a despised woman. It says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, this is an unusual encounter. And you have to think of what the woman is thinking as she's walking towards the well. We have no indication that anybody else was there. It's even strange that she would come alone, because women would typically come early in the day or late in the day when it's cool, and they would go in groups for safety. But here she comes alone, and she sees a man at the well. That's an unusual sight, because it's typically women that drew water from the well. She sees this with her own eyes, and it's not just a man, it's a Jewish man. (laughs) And it appears that no one else is around. And then even John, I think, parenthetically includes for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, just to intensify uh, the story, as it were. We see Jesus, of course, throughout the gospel as the exalted Son of God, but also he comes to minister in humble meekness to a despised woman. It's a divine appointment that God has set up. Nothing's happening by chance here, right? It's a divine appointment. He went through Samaria first. He sends his disciples off to get food so that he would be alone. He sat at the well, fully unavoidable, that this woman could not dodge him. And he asked the woman whom he knew was unclean, impure, heretical, and disreputable Samaritan for a drink. Now John records simply, give me a drink. I don't think he said it rudely. I, don't, I think he might have just said it directly. Um, but those are the words that we have here. Now, we have to think from her mindset, this would have rocked her world. The Jews have no dealings with, with the Samaritans, but it's more than that. Men typically didn't even talk to women, Jewish men, to Jewish women in public. In fact, there were some extreme Pharisees that would close their eyes so they didn't even have to look at a woman. So you add that to the, to the situation here that, that a Jew is talking to a Samaritan. This would have rocked her world. And wells, by the way, if you didn't know, were places where women were at to where if you wanted a woman... You would go to a well, right? That's where Isaac found his wife. That's where Jacob found his wife. That's where, sadly, Judah rapes Tamar because he goes there in chapter Genesis thirty-eight. And so, this is a place. It's a dangerous place for um, a woman to be all alone. Jesus breaks all cultural and social norms in verse nine. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said, "How is it that you?" Being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman. He's breaking all the social norms. He's asking, he's asking the Samaritan woman, now, now get this, to take her vessel, to dip it into the water, and to give it to him to drink from. It's not as though Jesus has a canteen here, draw, draw it and fill up my canteen. It gets even more radical it's kind of like in the South, you know, the 1950s, Mississippi, Alabama. You had the black and the white drinking fountains and that kind of thing, and it would be considered taboo to drink from, you know, a white to drink from a black, and so forth and so on. And so, assuming Jesus was not African American, we really have no way of knowing. Every illustration breaks down. It would be as though what Jesus is doing here is like a white man asking a black woman to fill her water bottle and then to allow him to drink from it. You see how, how crazy that would be in that context, and that's, that's something along the lines of trying to emphasize the strangeness of this and how Jesus is coming, but he has application, he has compassion for her and care. We too need to make contact with the lost. If you're looking for an opportunity for evangelism, I'll give you little tidbits along the way. Um, Contact. If you you never have contact with the lost, right? Jesus goes there. He knows this woman's going to be coming. John Calvin says, The gospel does not fall from the clouds like rain by accident, but is brought by the hands of men to where God has sent it. Simply, God uses means, right? He uses means. So we've seen the detestable region, the despised woman, and now Jesus freely offers a divine resource. A divine resource. And this is our next seed. Jesus stimulates curiosity. Right? So contact with the lost, then curiosity. And and what does he say? Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you little living water, brothers and sisters. The reason he asked for a drink goes far beyond the fact that his that he's actually thirsty as a human. But Jesus is the soul seeking Savior. He is the one to has, truly has compassion upon the outcast and the despised. And so what he says here is is, is like a Mishal. It's a riddle-like character that causes reflection and wonderment and even answering questions. And so even the very thing and what he says causes her to engage, right, by asking questions. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is pursuing her. Everything that he says, everything that he does is completely intentional. There's nothing here that's happening by chance. It's by his sovereign design. Jesus compassionately offers a free gift. I think of chapter 1, verse 16, we've all seen of his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth, and from his fullness we have all received. We who are proud and proud, and arrogant, and sinful, and slothful. Even we have benefited, and even for this Samaritan woman. Jesus speaks of living water. That, that communicates something that's moving, right? Not just sitting there stagnant, right? It's something that it's, it's moving. It's, it's active. And, and, and as I already mentioned, um, many historians say there was many live springs in that area. And so if you could draw water and get down to the bottom where, the, where it's coming from the natural underground springs, it would be all the more pure than the stagnant, stable water up high. We already read in our Scripture reading, but John chapter 7, We'll see Jesus at the feast. Now, it was the last day of the great day of the feast, and he stood out and cried out. That's to herald, basically. And he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, from his innermost beings will flow rivers of living water. You see, even there, there's a a movement, a flowing. There's living waters, as it were. Even these Greek words mean uh, that it's used flowing water. But there's so much more here. There are many Old Testament passages which speaks of the living waters. We've already read from Jeremiah 2. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, yea, broken cisterns that can hold no water See, in the, in the midst of all of this apostasy of the Jews, they've rejected the pure running supply of God's goodness, choosing instead the stagnant waters and a cistern, and yea, even a cracked cistern that can't even hold that. Psalm 36, for with you is a fountain of life. Waters all throughout the scriptures. Isaiah 55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. It's an invitation, it's a call to come, to be satisfied with what only he can satisfy us. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon says this, What does a thirsty man do to get rid of his thirst? He drinks. Well, perhaps there is no better representation of faith in all the word of God than that. To drink is to receive and take in the refreshing drought, and that is all. A man's face may, may be unwashed, but yet he can drink. He may be, have an unworthy character, but yet a draught of water will remove his thirst. Drinking is such a remarkable, easy thing. It is even easier than simply eating. Well, we see here the woman's response in verses 11 and 12. You know, she's, she's considering, she's listened to this. It's aroused curiosity and questions. In her, and, and so now she's thinking that not only is this an exhausted Jewish man sitting here, but that it's an empty-handed Jewish man sitting here. And she says that you've even got nothing to draw with, sir." She said to him, "Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water?" there's no rope, there's no bucket, there's no cups, there's nothing. He's empty-handed. And so she's saying, where do you get this water? She basically cannot grasp the spiritual truth that Jesus is pushing forward. How in the world are you going to draw up water? It reminds me of Nicodemus. Do you remember when, when Jesus said, you must be born again? And Nicodemus is just thinking literal. It's like, can I go into my mother's womb a second time, right? He's just, he's thinking literal, not spiritual. And so too for her, how will you give me living water? You have no rope to draw with. But she does say here in verse 12, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank from it from himself, his sons and his cattle. So she's beginning to kind of consider Maybe there is some type of superiority to this Jewish man than even Jacob, but she's got a long way to go. So Jesus now arouses craving in her, right? And so what he says in verse 13, he says, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but everyone who drinks of the water that I shall give shall never thirst. But the water that I will give will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life the truth is those who drank from the natural wells will become thirsty again there's no way your thirst can be quenched from the natural waters of life but these the old testament promises and there's there's several in ezekiel and isaiah just one right here in 44 three, for i will pour out water on a thirsty land And streams on dry ground, I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So, just a little bit of application for us. This woman was physically thirsty for water, and Jesus told her that he could give her living water to quench her spiritual thirst as well. In the same way, we have a deep longing for something more, in our lives, those those who are outside of Christ, and it can only be satisfied with a relationship with God. Companionship and intimacy will not satisfy that. The waters of this natural life will not satisfy your deepest longings to have peace with God. You need something more, as Kent Hughes says in his commentary, Scripture makes it clear, and all of us who have lived most of our lives can make it clear that companionship and sexual intimacy do not satisfy the thirstings of the soul. Notwithstanding the fact that these things are created by God and are given to him for our immense pleasure and fulfillment in this life, they do not quench these deepest longings that we all have. Likewise, materialism, having riches and, and those types of things, or just seeking pleasure, 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 and these kinds of things, Do not satisfy prestige and honor and power. Do not satisfy that inward longing that we all have. Listen to the 8th century monarch of Cordova. He said this, I have now reigned above 50 years in victory and in peace, beloved by my subjects, dreaded by my enemies, respected by my allies, riches and honor and power and pleasure, have waited on my call, nor does any earthly blessing appear to have been wanting to my felicity, or lacking. There's nothing lacking. In this situation, I have diligently numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness which have fallen to my lot, and they amount to 14. O man, place not thy confidence in this present world, a man that reigned for over 50 years and can only point to 14 days of peace. What a horrible thing. It's, it? It's, uh, does it sound like anybody else? Solomon, right? You think it's Solomon here? In and, and, and Ecclesiastes 5.10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This, too, is vanity. My friends, trying to quench this inward longing, that only God can satisfy in Christ. Is, and, or the things of this, With the things of this world, the spiritual thirst is like drinking salt water to satisfy that longing. It's not going to satisfy, is it? Well, look what Jesus says in 14a. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give shall never thirst. There's something of the fullness of the satisfaction of this water here. It's, it's a beautiful promise, brethren, that's here. It's, it's drinking of this living water. It points to two things. It's our thirst is completely and utterly satisfied. But not only that, it's permanently satisfied. You don't get it for a week. You don't get it for a year and have to renew, you know, re- renew your membership to this. No, no, no. It's complete and it's permanent. Now, once you have that thirst satisfied, there is, as Jesus says in the Beatitudes, to hunger and thirst after righteousness. But that's pointing to our sanctification, right? Our spiritual growth. But then secondly, the second half of the verse, "...but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life." This is the character of the satisfaction. It's, it's, it's this abundant life that he gives us. It's this joy that we've never known before until we've come to Christ. That's, it's, a, it's a satisfying, quench-thirsting Savior. Springing up. It's a beautiful imagery here. It's, it's like bubbling up within us. That's what this living water does. In fact, the Greek word that's used here is used um, literally of the man in Acts in chapter 3 that jumped to his feet, leaped up to his feet. But figuratively, as it is here, is to spring up from a source, to well up, to bubble up from within. It's a divine spring. It's like a dancing fountain that occurs within us. Living the life of the Christian is not stagnant. It's full of movement and joy. <clears throat> Revelation seven seventeen, And the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Do you see how water is just everywhere in Scripture? It's promised as the Holy Spirit, it's promised as eternal life, it's promised here, even a snapshot into heaven, that there will be springs of, of living water. Fascinating. Well, does she get it? Let's go to verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water. Wow, does she get it? She, does, does she want the living water? <laughs> Keep on reading. Give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor have to come here and draw. Ah, she missed it again, right? She missed it again. She hasn't been completely illumined just yet. She doesn't recognize, let me tell you, her spiritual thirst. That's That's what needs to happen here, right? She needs to recognize that, yes, I'm destitute. I'm lost. I need something more. She doesn't recognize that she's got a spiritual thirst. Christ is offering something altogether unique that's going right over her head, a spring that would bubble up inside unto eternal life. But she's aware that Jesus is referring to some kind of special water, but she's still thinking in the physical. So let's consider our last point. Jesus declares her sinful guilt. Jesus generates here conviction of sin in his dialogue. That's what needs to happen. She doesn't just, the health and wealth gospel, she would have made it there in verse 15, right? Give me this water, okay! You know, whatever, right? But no, there's no real conviction of sin. There's no real brokenness. There's no real regeneration, and that has to be there. Jesus engages with this woman in a way to generate her spiritual thirst, she needs to recognize her utter need of him. Carson says in his commentary, Up till now, she has misunderstood the true dimensions of her need and the real nature of her self confessed thirst. Well, what does he say? He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. Well, that's kind of where did that come from? Go call your husband and come here. She says, I have no husband. Okay, that's pretty remarkable. Um, that's three words, actually, in the Greek. She's been very talkative up to this point, right? 42 words in verses 11 and 12, and, verse, uh, and 13 and verse 15, and now three words. She who was formerly very talkative now becomes very closed-mouthed. When she said, I have no husband, she was probably hoping for no further discussion about my personal life. You're kind of digging a little too deep. She's hoping that 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 would divert the conversation. but, But that's what Jesus does, is he presses all the more to declare her sinful lifestyle. Look at what he says. He said, you have correctly said, I have no husband, You have five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Now, that this you have said truly is Jesus is softening what he's doing. You're an honest person, you know, you have no husband. And in fact, I'll tell you, and you had all of this, and by the word, the word that's used here can mean men, it can mean husband, um, but I think we get the picture. Um, that's being painted here, but it's amazing the insight that Jesus has. I mean, even back in chapter one, when Nathaniel, or Jesus said to Nathaniel, coming to him and said, "Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit." So that's on the positive side, right? But then here, pointing these things out to her, well, her eyes continue to open. The woman said, "Sir." I perceive that you are a prophet. Since Jesus told her many things of himself, she advances a little bit. Remember, she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Now I perceive that you're a prophet. She's stopping short that you're the son of God, the only one that can save. But there's little baby steps, as it were. She still doesn't understand the living water. She doesn't say, woe is me, I'm undone, right? We don't have any profession here. It's just, hmm, I perceive that you're a prophet. She gains her composure, as it were. And then, verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship there's a person, there's, you know, so Jesus knows everything about her. And then here she tries to even shift the topic to worship. You notice that? Okay, and we're going to unpack that um, next week, actually, just looking at verses 20 to 26 on worship. But she tries to shift the topic, is, is what I think she does. There's a couple commentators that say, oh, no, no, I think she's just genuinely asking the question, which could be. But it's always easier to talk theology than to talk about our personal sin, right? You know, it's always easy to talk a little bit about denominational differences, infant baptism, believer's baptism, than our own personal sin, right? And some men and women are very good about it. But he wants us to be open and honest about our personal sin. In fact, Just as Jesus knows absolutely everything about this woman, every minute detail, there's not a person sitting in this building today that Jesus doesn't know every minute detail, every thought that you've had. How many hairs fell from your head even this very day? That's how omniscient he is. No one escapes the very eye of God. He knows what is in the darkness. His knowledge surpasses all things, and it's always perfect. Everything is laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have to do. Hebrews 4 and verse 13. Well, let's draw some applications. If you want the five C's of evangelism, here they are. We have saw it right in the text. Contact. I can't even remember where I got this from. It might have been George Scipione. Um, Contact. Arouse curiosity. That's what we do at Balboa Park. We'll ask some, some questions. And then sort of paint a picture of the craving. And sometimes you can do that by, by giving your own testimony of some sort, that I once craved this, now I have the satisfaction, and so you want craving in them. But then conviction. And that's where Ray Comfort and you know, bringing God's law in is always so good. You've, have you ever told a lie? <laughs> you know, Everybody's going to admit that, of course, well, you've broken God's law. and you break God's law, you deserve hell. So, and then finally, conversion, which really we'll see um, uh, next week. In verse 26, Jesus said to her, the woman, in fact, verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah is coming and he who is called the Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And then she runs into town, come see a man who told me all things. That I have done this, is not the Christ, is he? So there's conversion. Well, when's the last time you shared the gospel? This is a valid application, I think. Sharing our faith, that's how the kingdom of God grows. Uh, obviously, under the preached word of God, many people are saved. It says in Proverbs 11, He who wins souls is wise. And most people, when they think of evangelism, they think of those stadium crusades, right? You come on down to the field and you know, say this prayer, say that prayer. By the way, repeating prayers that are not in the Bible have done more damage to the Christian church and wayward sheep than anything because you get a false assurance. Well, I, I went down to the field and I said the prayer, but why isn't anything changing, Right? It's a false assurance. Or maybe they, hey, I'm good now. I can just go do whatever. It's like Roman Catholics. They go in the booth, they confess their sins. They're like, cool, I'm good for another week, and I'll come and just do it again next week. Many are saved under the means of grace and under the hearing of the preaching of the gospel, even in a church service like this. Peter had 3,000 converts at Pentecost. Obviously, supernatural time, special, distinct time. Um, and redemptive history. But most converts are won by personal evangelism, or at least beginning that. It's personal evangelism. Just think, who, who told you about Christ and your need of salvation? Now, just some thoughts here. Use all the wise and reasonable means when dealing with souls. <coughs> Many Christians today are not effective at sharing their faith simply because they are lazy and self-centered. They don't want to be inconvenienced. They're too busy binging Netflix. They don't want to give up of their Saturday to go for an hour or two and engage the lost. They, they, They oftentimes are just engrossed in themselves. Some are too consumed with their family or their career. And they have no time to participate in outreach ministries or even to be purposeful and intentional at sharing your faith. One way to motivate you to engage with the lost, and this is really key, is realize what Jesus Christ has done for you. Oh, yeah, I mean, I I read the history books. He died on the cross for all of our salvation right now. He died for you and all of your wicked sins. He went through everything on this earth, lived a sinless life, endured a horrible death to purchase your salvation and your salvation. He paid for every one of your sins upon the cross. And if you can just think about that as, yeah, it's cool, I mean, I'm worth it, right? No, better not think that way. You need to fall in love with Christ all the more. And then you look at a lost and a dying world out there, and it's like, how can I keep my mouth shut? I have a challenge for you. I'm not talking to those that engage in evangelism often, and I'm not proposing some legalistic formula, okay? Just a simple challenge for you. Engage with someone at your work or school once per month. Pray about that. Someone that you have your eye on, you bump into at the water cooler or whatever, or on the construction site at the, the food thing, whatever. Engage with someone once a month in your workplace. Secondly, attend one of our outreach events, Planned Parenthood twice a month, Balboa Park, Lord willing, starting back up twice a month, or the rescue mission, once per quarter. Just once per quarter for an hour or two. There will be more experienced people there. You don't have to, you know, you're not going to be given a microphone or anything, but just to be there. Thirdly, pray for an unsaved family member every day for a week, or if you really want to put out to a month, and then call them and pray that God opens a door that you could share your faith. Now those are just some practical challenges for you to consider and pray about. You can disregard them, but just something is an application. But I come back to it. You've got to understand what Christ has done for you. Is he not worth it? For us to engage, do you have spiritual satisfaction today? Have you received the living water, or are you pursuing the wrong things in this life it 's like I keep drinking water because I have a dry throat right now, but I could drink this down and i 'm going to be thirsty again right in the next few hours or by tomorrow or whatever it 's like eating a nice steak dinner that. Uh, <laughs> We used to have somebody here that that would offend, um, uh, but they're no longer at the church. Uh, But anyway, it's like eating a nice steak dinner and being so satisfied. But what happens? Even if you go 24 hours later, you're hungry again. Some of you foolishly think, and maybe some of you young people, even some of the young people that have witnessed our two recent baptisms in the last couple of months. I'll just wait. I'll take care of that down the road. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. This was in his conclusion on a sermon on uh, 415 of this chapter. We may not see tomorrow's sun, albeit that the sun is well nigh gone down, yet the light of this evening may not have gone before our life has ended. How near to death we stand, and yet we scarcely think of it. Right on the edge of our graves, sometimes we are, and yet we sport and we laugh as though we have a lease on life. You forget death, most of you. The cemetery's far out of town, but still, you should not. For, you should not quite forget, for the hearse goes to and fro with awful regularity. People are dying regularly, and the church bell that tolls is not rusty. You get it? It's, it doesn't have time to gather rust because it's always being rung. Earth to earth, dust to dust, ashes to ashes are still familiar to the ears of some of us. And it will soon be your turn to die. What an obvious, awesome thing to consider that your days are numbered. Flee from the wrath to come. Escape for your life now. Isn't that what the angels told Lot and his family? Escape for your life. Run Run to safety today! The door of mercy stands wide open to any who would come. The only one that can satisfy your inward longings is the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to him, repent of your sin, turn from it, and come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word, and we thank you for this glorious um, account of the Samaritan woman Lord, help us to fall in love with you all the more that it would motivate us to not only have better communion with you, as Hudson Taylor said, so that we would just become natural missionaries, Lord, but also that you would loosen our tongues. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.